the thing that you do to create these items. It's born out of creativity, resilience, and just this spirit of making things that fit what your what your way of life is. Mm -hmm. So they would, um, my late grandma was a carpenter too. I mean, among uh, other things, but she was able to create these stools like we had a stool uh, probably for 40, 30 or 40 years that um, withstood time because mm. she just created it in such a, um, you know, that it held up. And mm -hmm. so creating these little Barbies and it, it's just a, a reflection of that, I think. And, and it makes me feel connected to my late grandma. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes other people feel so special that um, there's something that reflects who they are. And mm -hmm. I just love being able to create that and helping people to, you know, have that connection, whether they're an adult or it's something that they could share with their kids and create for their kids. That was Angela Gonzalez. She's an artist and a writer. And through her beadwork, her blog, the Athabascan Woman blog, and the fish camp Barbie dioramas she creates, she shares her heritage. She says that it's all a reflection of the way she grew up. Fish camp was a big part of that. As a kid, that's where she spent most of her summers, about 16 miles from her home in Huslia, along the Koyukuk River. While the adults were harvesting the fish, her grandma would put Angela's Barbies in settings that resembled what was happening all around them. Catching the fish, hanging the fish, preserving it, cooking it. And then once she was old enough, she helped out with those chores. Angela says that she didn't realize how special Fish Camp was until she started creating Fish Camp Barbie dioramas for her own daughters. It was a way to share her life with them and to teach them how to be proud of who they are. From her time at Fish Camp, Angela also learned the importance of work. That if you want to succeed, then you need to work. Today, this manifests itself in her beating. It's easy for her to sit down for a few hours and focus on a project. She's beaded earrings, pins, the top of gloves, slippers, coasters. A recent project she finished included caribou tufting, raised beadwork, and silverberry beads that she harvested herself. She says she's inspired by the beadwork of her late grandmas and her aunts, their color choices, designs, and techniques. She likes to think about the stories and the experiences that led them to create their art. So here she is, Angela Gonzalez. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. What does Barbie mean to you? Well, Barbie is just, um, I guess, a 
a, of course it's a doll, you know, um, but when I was younger, um, my late grandma, she um, would uh, dress up our dolls and help us make little outfits and um, tools and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. in fish camp, we stayed um, from the time school got out until um, the time school started in the fall. So we spent most of our summers about 16 miles below Huslia. And so, of course, you know, toys um, was something that we just had to have an imagination for. Yeah. And so it was just uh, um, brings back memories of playing with Barbies uh, along the cut bank of the Kaikuk River. And do you remember your first Barbie? I don't think I remember the first Barbie. I just remember it in a place which is um, in the sand um, of, with these elaborate mansions of sand, made with sand <laughs> yeah. um, along the river. Um, and then just the tools like my grandma would make um, little ulus or tlabas. Tlabas is the Danaka name for the little knife. Okay, yeah. And um, she made that out of like the salt shakers. And oh, so okay. um, they just, you know, had different, um, like something that reflected our ways of life, which was fishing. So mm -hmm. when we weren't playing, we were doing chores, whether that was helping with cooking or gathering wood, um, hanging up fish, um, watching the fire, stoking it as needed, mm -hmm. um, and then just cutting fish if we were old enough. So you're going back and forth between, you know, as a kid, on the river, you're going back and forth between uh, playing with these Barbies in these uh, situations that are resembling what's happening around you. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just like that was our way of life, you know, and so we um, it was just a way of playing. I didn't think it was like unique or anything like that um until much later okay and it just brought back memories as i was um creating this little scene for my youngest daughter um the, how special it was but yeah it was just playing you know and yeah. we made clothes for them and it was just uh i guess like a magical time now that i look back on it how often were your mom and your grandma creating these things like you know, those miniature Ulus. I, we had them all the time. So probably every time um, there was, uh, we finished the salt. Yeah, um, okay. and it didn't, I don't think it took too long. Um, and, you know, with each, each package, you would get two nicely shaped <laughs> little <laughs> Ulu blades. Um, yeah. And then we just put a stick on it to, to be the handle. Um, but, Probably, you know, throughout the summer, we might have finished like at least one, but maybe two. Mm -hmm. Do you remember if the Barbie dolls you played with as a kid were white? Yes, they were mostly blonde hair, blue eyed Barbies. They didn't quite look like us, but that didn't stop us from playing with them. Do you remember what you thought about that at the time, or was it just a doll? 
it was pretty much just a doll. Um, I didn't think about the fact that it didn't look like me. Um, I just imagined this far off place where, because in our village, there was mostly native people, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. either Koyukon, Athabascan or Anupiak. And um, so that was my frame of reference. Everything else was either from like what I could imagine um, from TV or radio uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, magazines um, mm -hmm. from about this different life outside of the village. What did you think about that different life outside of the village? I just imagine that uh, people had um, like these houses with a lawn and um, like, I guess, the picket fence and um, just a, a family, you know, um, mm -hmm. and I guess I didn't really imagine too much more than that besides what I might have learned about something um, from TV. Mm -hmm. What do you remember learning from TV about that kind of life? Just that um, there was this whole different life that people were living in these cities. Um, I was, you know, from the village, so it was even hard to imagine, like, what life would be like. Um, like, you know, as far as, like, everyone having a car and driving around and having street signs and cement all over. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I went, the first time I went to the lower 48, I went to D.C. Mm, okay. And I just saw, like, cement and... So everything was so new and just so like I was totally shocked, uh, like a big culture shock yeah. of all this seeing all this um, cement and crossing the street when, you know, there's a stoplight and you have the little hand. Uh, yeah, yeah. So just putting those real references to things that I saw on TV, they're like right there in front of me. Yeah. And did it feel like you were in those television scenarios, those television scenes? A little bit. Um, like, I just remember, like, green grass, you know, that's a big thing that was often showed on TV. And um, so people with lawns, I just thought that was, like, so interesting. Um, and I thought it was so cool, like, yeah. you know, they would show picnics, uh, people having picnics on their lawn or in a park, you know. Yeah. So when I got to see those places in real life, I thought it was really cool. <laughs> Why do you think green grass? You mentioned green grass, and that's something that you really recognized when you were in D.C., and also concrete. Why do you think that those two things really stuck out to you? I think that it's just such a um, something that you saw on TV regularly. Okay. Um, like, I remember the first time I like crossed this um, walk, this walkway. I think I ran because I was so scared <laughs> okay. of um, 
and everyone else was walking like normal. Um, but I think it was, it just, I think there was a lot of fear Okay. because I didn't know like if cars would stop and, um, but you know, once I got used to it, of course it was like normal, like it, it's no big deal. Yeah. But coming from the village, it's like, you know, when you're, um, going to this totally new situation and place, it's just hard to imagine. Um, like, I don't know that, that fear. I just remember running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were you running from whatever it was, the cars possibly, or were you running to? I think I was running, um, because I didn't know like how much time it would take to run across. Uh, well, first of all, it was a different intersection in the fact that it was like six lanes. So three lanes on each side. So it was a huge yeah. intersection. So yeah. that's why part of it. Um, but yeah, it was like my first time crossing an intersection like that. And um, so I just, I think I was running to the other side and not knowing if I had enough time to cross. I wonder if you've had a visitor, maybe you hosted somebody in Huslia that had a similar reaction to Huslia as you did to DC. Oh yeah. Like the opposite culture shock. Probably. Yeah. Um, I've brought friends to Huslia and Bettles cause we used to live in Bettles, um, which is North of Huslia on the Kaikuk river. Okay. And, um, they were just like shocked about like how we lived that there was no you know there was dirt roads mainly um and then coming in on a small plane that was just so scary for them okay um, and that was a way of life for us you know in alaska yeah um like a nine-seater or sometimes a six-seater sometimes an 18-seater yeah but um yeah, and the food. I think that was a total culture shock for my friends who visited. Um, they just, I mean, I think some of it was like shocking uh, and thankfully they were open. Um, but I one time we had um, muskrat soup and that was just something normal that my grandma, my late grandma cooked, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they were just uh, really, um, not, it, it was kind of like, eh, for them, um, <laughs> but, um, to, I guess to her credit, she tried it and she, um, it wasn't as bad as she imagined, I guess. Okay. And, but it was just like a normal thing for us, like soup, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder, what did you show them, your visitors? What did that trip look like for them you know in your mind you're showing them your home community you know mm -hmm. you're showing them huslia and you want i would assume you want them to have this full picture of where you grew up yes um when i went away to college at the university of tulsa in oklahoma i a couple of my friends came back and visited at different times but um, so for this time, I would like try to explain what life was like 
and um, they were always curious. Lots of people were curious about um, how I was raised and I would talk about things and it was just such a like um, like you and I could probably have that same conversation of you growing up in you know maybe the city and then I'm growing up in the village mm-hmm. about our different lifestyles you would be curious you know so yeah. they asked me a lot of questions and so I think that curiosity um, brought them to Alaska they wanted to see you know and probably some of their perceptions of Alaska in general of this beautiful place where we have the tallest mountain mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and they wanted to see that too um, but they were able to come to um, the village and just get a real life experience of what it was like the food and then traveling by four-wheeler mm-hmm. um, traveling by boat um, my friend Chris she met us in Bettles and then my family was already going down to Huslia, um by boat so we took a long boat ride um, <laughs> and that was how we spent a lot of the trip um, but I think there she was really curious about all the stories that I told about what it was like to grow up and live in Alaska and in the village. Do you remember the stories that you would tell them? I think mainly like the food I would try to explain because mainly because I missed the food, the native Mm -hmm. food, like um, moose soup, dry meat, um, crackers. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the things that, people were curious about sometimes I was fortunate to be able to bring some um, dried moose meat down with me and they got to sample some Um, but I think I shared about um, like moose hunting um, and how we um, you know work to like smoke it and put it away and um, and then fishing, mm-hmm. um, being out on the boat. And I remember talking about uh, winter and pe- answering questions about the darkness um, and how dark we were. And then, and then just about clearing up misperceptions they might have about, you know, thinking that everyone in Alaska were Eskimos. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I'm on Athabascan, so it's different, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, so just talking about that difference. And then, of course, there was all these um, misperceptions about people in Alaska living in igloos. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we, I would joke around about that, but, um, but no, I would just clear it up for the most part. Yeah, that's kind of all you can do. Yeah. Was there a point when you were answering these questions that you realized that the place you grew up in was something that other people were interested in? Yeah. I mean, um, just the sheer amount of answering questions, sharing about, um, you know, what life was like. Mm -hmm. I found that so many people were really interested in that. They had so many questions about, you know, the littlest things to the big things. I didn't know all the answers. You know, I was 
a teenager when I left to go to school and it's mm -hmm. not like I'm I'm an adult now so I might know a little bit more information but it's yeah. not like I'm an expert on our ways of life just my experience but even my experience of living in fish camp was so um, interesting to people and people you know want that I guess that experience and want to see what that lifestyle is like so I found myself explaining a lot over the years about that and then clearing up um, any stereotypes that people had about Alaska Native people or Khoikhan Athabascan people or people from rural Alaska. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you just mentioned and we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the time that you and your family spent in fish camp. Can you tell me about those summers that you and your family spent in fish camp? Yeah. So my dad was a dog musher and a lot of um, mushers come out of Huslia and they still still um, there are still a lot more mushers in Huslia. But we are we're a dog mushing family. And one of the things that we fed the dogs was fish. So um, in addition to eating our fish, we had eating fish and then we had dog fish. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had that, I guess, uh, pressure or need to go fishing. So we would put in our fish nets. Uh, I, the adults, um, we it was multi-family. So like my cousins would be there, maybe not all summer. Um, my parents were there for most of the summer along with my late grandma, but we would have like extended family come and go throughout the summer. Um, and they would fish, hang out, um, and then help, like everyone had a role um, from the youngest to the oldest. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just a life centered around fishing um, from the time we got up all the way until the time we went to sleep. Um, I think they checked the fishnet like twice a day and we would get a lot of fish. So the older kids and the adults would um, check the net, come back and then um, I think they ate breakfast and oh, like, yeah, that was part of it. My grandma would start uh, breakfast and we would help um, start the fire. Um, mm -hmm. And then the adults and older kids would come back with the fish and then um, they would eat and then we would um, start cutting the fish. And so they would just start slicing and they, I think we had like, um, maybe three or four fish cutting tables. And so that's what they did um, all morning. And then we just, you know, kind of like ran errands, got wood. Um, that was a big thing like every day and every day we would have to go farther and farther, you know, cause we did that all summer. Yeah. Um, getting driftwood, uh, which was, you know, kind of nice if it washed up, but um, we'd have to go like deeper into the woods. So we would, do that and then um and then it would time be time to um maybe rest a little bit after that big rush um sometimes if it was like a nice sunny hot day which we'd had a lot of those in in interior alaska mm -hmm. um 
we would be able to go swimming and and then um, later in the afternoon the whole the cycle would start again with checking the net again and then we'd cut more fish and then um, you know smoke them and keep them smoked mm -hmm. and then when they dried because they did we had like um, a smokehouse where we had our eating fish um, and then some were outside of on uh, little fish racks outside of the um, smokehouse and then along the banks we had two fish racks mainly for the dogfish mm -hmm. and we would um, dry those and one of our roles or I guess chores was to flip them over so um, like the the bugs wouldn't, you know, have the, the maggots wouldn't um, be growing too much. And then we would keep okay. the smoke on it. And so that's what kept the bugs away. Yeah. Um, and then once we finished drying, like the dogfish, it wouldn't, it would take a few days, um, maybe a week. Um, and then we would uh, package them up. Um, and we, my dad rigged up this like little, um, I, it was kind of like a, I, I call it a box, but it was more like a, um, something with four pegs where okay. they could, um, put all, put a stack of fish into it and then we would tie ropes around it. So okay. it was just like a system to package that up and then we would either box it or, um, yeah, mainly box it, but put it in stacks in the back of the smokehouse um, mm -hmm. and then at the end of the summer we would bring that back up to um, uh, the to our house in Huslia. so yeah we spent I mean I feel like um, we worked a lot yeah. and we did work a lot <laughs> um, so it's all about working and working together and yeah. we you know sometimes hear stories um, and it was a lot of fun like the, yeah. my late grandma made it fun um, just so we wouldn't get bored I'm sure and then um, uh, my mom and other aunties um, made it fun they would uh, we would have well-worn comic books okay like Archie comic books um, and so at least everyone who was able to read read them all maybe more than once um, <laughs> and then and then when we went to town we would trade you know with our uh, relatives and friends and in the village and then um, we also had like little things other things to do sometimes not all the time but I remember having an embroidery kit so okay. just things that I'm sure my mom would like get us started and help us but just to distract us and um, you know let us not be so um, bored and wanting to go to <laughs> Huslia. Um, and when we got to go to Huslia, it was like a like a treat. Not okay. everyone would be able to go, but when we, um, if we were good, um, like, you know, worked hard and didn't cause too much trouble or get into trouble, yeah. then uh, we would kind of like take turns and be able to go to um, town and take a shower. Um, we, we kept clean cause we had bathtubs and we were able to shower in the camp, Okay, but, um, it was nice to take a warm shower in, in Huslia and then getting some snacks. We would ha have to be, um, 
be ready to do all the chores and the house too we would come with a shopping <laughs> list get the shopping done um, get all our supplies get more gas because um, they needed gas to like check the net every day and um, so but yeah I remember going back to the village and just uh, enjoying it um, but we had to be quick and come back before the end of the day yeah like you said earlier you all worked a lot you know, what's funny is before you said that, I had written it down to make a comment about it. You know, I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work. How do you think all that work has affected you into adulthood? I think that um, it's it give it gave me a perspective that it's it's to succeed. You need to work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so. I, it didn't occur to me to like um, sit around and not, you know, go forward with my goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always something like that's ingrained in you that uh, you just have to put in the work to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that it helped me overall with my work ethic and doing things and constantly doing things. It's about problem solving, mm-hmm. um, you know, just thinking of ways to survive. So I think it's it's totally benefited me. Um, ways that it comes out is like in beadwork. Okay. Like it, it's no big deal for me to like sit down for a few hours and do some beadwork and, mm-hmm. um, and accomplish something. And some people who don't do beadwork, they think it's just this huge thing. But if you sit down and do it, it's it, it's a, something you can accomplish. Yeah. So yeah. it helped me to make me feel like we can accomplish things in just a short amount of time. And, and then, yeah, we could rest and relax in different times, too, mm-hmm. when we're done with our chores. Do you ever do beadwork when... Maybe you're watching TV, maybe you're on the phone, things like that to just keep your hands busy. Oh, totally. Um, I always feel like I have to have my my hands um, doing something. That's what helps me to focus. Um, And I feel like doing something with my hands helps my brain to like uh, learn things. but yeah, I do um, watch some shows, um, but sometimes it's a little bit too distracting. Um, so I listen to audiobooks and I listen to um, podcasts and YouTube videos, um, things that I could have in the background while I'm doing beadwork. Mm-hmm. I, um, I can just something that doesn't take me away from like, I don't want to poke myself or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. Take away my focus. When you're doing beadwork to keep your hands busy while you are listening to an audio book or a podcast, or you have a YouTube video on, do you know what you're creating? Are you planning it or does it just happen? Most of the time I have a pattern that, um, and a pattern is like a good recipe in that it it's something that you can draw on and then you just follow it. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
that's something that I'm super grateful for getting patterns from uh, my late grandma, my mom, my aunties, other bead workers. Um, sometimes we trade and so I draw the pattern on and then um, and it's kind of like I guess second nature by the time mm -hmm. you put a pattern on then you just follow it but there are choices that you can make along the way that um, like color choices or bead choices that you can make um, that will make each part different or mm -hmm. trying a different technique like raised beading or incorporating um, caribou tufting so mm, okay. it's that's I guess the creative part is that you can um, you know follow but you can also do your own thing and mm -hmm. and so I mostly follow patterns and I usually have an idea sometimes it I try different things um, and techniques and I guess different challenges with harder designs and I get a lot of requests for different things and so sometimes those are challenges but they're also fun yeah what was the last pattern or beadwork you did uh, one of the things that I'm working on is um, cup coasters so where you set your cups down mm -hmm. and I'm working on a cranberry pattern and so I just have beading the pattern um, and so I made two a set of two blueberries and so I'm doing a similar thing with cranberries because the person who ordered it wanted four coasters so they're okay. all about berries uh, <laughs> and that, that's a fun fun design yeah how about a favorite piece of beadwork you've done Let's see. That's a good question. I I guess one of the things that I really like doing is slippers in general. Um, they're just such a huge thing for people that like they might get a one pair of slippers in their lifetime sometimes, if that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's just something special to people. And I, I love the feeling of creating something that they will cherish and wear and um, something that they that reflects who they are, you know, with mm -hmm. the either the design or um, something special that makes it their own. So I guess I just like creating things that people will love and appreciate and makes them feel special for having this beadwork item yeah uh, whether it's a pair of slippers or earrings um, or a necklace or anything like that uh, one huge project that i finished recently was like a collar for my oldest daughter okay um, and it had beadwork and uh, caribou tufting raised beadwork um, and it was, I also put like silverberry beads that I harvested and, and created, mm -hmm. um, in the, I incorporated those in the design. And so it was just really awesome to give that to her. Um, I could just, you know, it just makes people feel special to, um, native and non-native people alike. 
um, they really enjoy it. But I think wearing the a piece of regalia uh, for my daughter was just something really special, makes her feel special for who she is. Mm -hmm. And how do you pick out those those other things that you include in the beadwork, like the tuft of fur? Are they based on uh, something about your daughter's characteristics or is it something else? I think it's um, just being creative in the moment. Um, uh, sometimes I just want to try different things, uh, make it unique. Um, like that was the first time I, that was, I think that was one of the biggest items that I beaded. Um, yeah, pretty much it is the biggest item that I created. Um, okay. And like I, I learned how to do caribou tufting at the like March of 2023. So I've just been slowly trying different projects with that. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I wanted to incorporate that. And then the silverberry um, beads were something that I have wanted to use. And I do uh, use it in different projects. Um, and then so I wanted to make sure to incorporate that because it feels like something special to me um, because I harvested the beads and it's yeah. just something traditional that's been in um, native regalia for thousands of years. Do you ever study or consider the beadwork of your elders? Yes, definitely. I get inspiration from my late grandmas and um, aunties, their beadwork. And I, I look at um, beadwork that I see in either pictures or museums. I just like, like looking at the color choices and their designs and how they, I just imagine the ways that they were inspired to um, create different items and mm -hmm. um, their techniques. Uh, I think about that. Sometimes it's not always apparent um, the way they did things until you kind of de deconstruct something. Um, I like deconstructing old beadwork. If, if it's falling apart, mm -hmm. you know, I'll look in how it was created um, maybe how they did their stitching uh, and then kind of maybe make a pattern out of their work. Um, that's how I created gloves. Um, we have, um, we sew gloves together with a, like a beaded glove top um, and then it has fur around the edging. 
So I haven't had a chance to um, sit down and make those with my family in Huslia. Mm -hmm. So deconstructing what was uh, an old pair was one way that I kind of learned about how they did it. And I made a pattern out of um, their creation. And when you're deconstructing these pieces of beadwork, are you actively thinking about the story behind it or are you discovering the story behind it? I think it's kind of discovering. Um, one of the things about the old, older beadwork is that, you know, the beads from 50, 100 years ago were, are different than they are now. Okay. Um, there's not as many color choices. Um, and so, it, not that that's a bad thing. Um, nowadays, you know, you can get any color under the rainbow. Yeah. And, um, but I like the way they were able to still be creative and share a picture um, of whatever they were designing. Mm -hmm. And it still comes to life. Like they had to be so creative. And, and then I also hear stories about older regalia when they just didn't throw things away. You know, they, mm -hmm. um, like beads were so precious back then. And we, I can totally take it for granted, uh, nowadays with all the, choices that we have for beads and just the quantity that we're able to buy, you know, on the mm -hmm. internet. Back in the day, I don't even know how they bought beads. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure they traded beads, you know, but I know that they used to, um, if once something is like totally worn out, they would take all the beads and then use it on a new project or they would um, put it back together. But Okay. Like moose hide tanning was something that was a regular, you know, thing that everyone did for their um, beadwork creations, but just for regular gear, like mm -hmm. um, bags, creating bags for hunting. Um, and then just they use it for all their um, warm gear, hunting gear. Um, and then just any, any kind of supplies, but anyway, so, um, they would have that and they could create new, um, gloves or slippers or anything like that, that they needed. Um, but they would, I think about that a lot, like how precious those beads were and that mm -hmm. they would take them all apart. They would take their beadwork apart and then recreate something new with the same beads Something that I think I just inevitably do when I go to a museum, for example, and I see something that is an article of clothing or maybe a satchel or something like that that belonged to someone so long ago is... You know, I think about how I interact with my favorite articles of clothing or, um, you know, a backpack that I really trust. And I think, you know, this was their version of that. And it had a life. And, 
you know, like we've been talking about, you know, I, I also wonder what that life was like because it's so similar to our current relationship with all of those things. Yes, definitely. I have um, similar thoughts as I look at these precious items of my ancestors because a lot of the museums in Alaska, especially around Fairbanks and then down here, they have collections directly from my ancestors. Okay. So it's okay. just a awesome to see um, these pieces of regalia or like a gun case that was beaded and some it has beads and sometimes yarn on it um, mm -hmm. or mittens. Um, yes, they were totally built for the area. Like mm -hmm. even nowadays in Huslia, um, a lot of people create warm um, boots, um, yarn socks, and then um, like hats, uh, fur hats from Huslia are really well known to be like really warm and, okay. Um, okay. you know, something that people rely on to survive. So yes, I imagine a lot of those pieces, um, I can kind of picture the time of year that they would use the item and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved what you just said about they rely on these pieces to survive. You know, they were so integral to their lives. Yes, definitely. It was not just something that we created for beauty. Like mm -hmm, oftentimes mm -hmm. it, it's that's what it is today. Like I don't necessarily in Anchorage need like the big winter mitts. Um, but, you know, I I love and appreciate it. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, back then and even nowadays, if I live in the interior, that's something I would definitely love and appreciate. Um, yeah. Yeah. I read that one of your favorite things to do is listen to elders share stories. Do you have any stories that you go to during times of hardship or maybe stories that comfort you? Uh, one story that kind of comes to mind is um, my late grandma shared about her uh, younger brother. His name was Jubilee, and it was in the early 1900s. Um, and then it was a time of the flu pandemic. And so it impacted people, like whole villages in Alaska. Some were wiped out because of that. But a lot of people in the villages, um, and mainly if back then it was also camps, you know. Okay. Um, and so even a whole camp was like knocked out because of um, coming into contact and contracting flu. Mm. And so um, one story that... Um, she shared was when her and her late brother, they were sick, but they weren't sick enough um, to help other people. So um, they would, someone was able to cook soup and maybe it was them, um, mm -hmm. but they would bring soup around to the different um, uh, houses and make sure people ate that uh, soup with the talith, which is the broth that helped them to um, get better. Okay. But I think about these kids that, you know, I mean, like, I don't know how old they were, but I think they were like, you know, maybe um, 
between six and 10 years old, uh, helping a village to survive. And that really wasn't that long time ago, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then it kind of, I think about that story sometimes about survival and hunger. There mm-hmm. was lots of days. She didn't tell me too much about starvation, but starvation was a real thing that would happen, you know, during certain times of the year or mm. if they had some type of hardship or didn't have luck hunting or gathering. Um, and, you know, that was a real, real life experience mm-hmm. and probably still is, you know, for people who are having a hard time um, being able to afford food nowadays. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that story comes to mind, especially when we had this um, COVID pandemic about yeah you know, survival and helping each other and just the resilience that um, they help people to survive. And he, I don't know if he died of um, the flu, but he didn't live into adulthood. Mm. Lots of people, lots of kids died of um, childhood common diseases in the villages that were brought in like mumps or, you know, just I don't know what the scarlet fever, you know. Okay. Um, lots of people died off that way, and as children. What's it like when you're sitting there, or maybe thinking about when you were sitting there listening to these stories when you were a kid, and you're listening to an elder tell them? My late grandma would share stories, and she was so creative. She had an amazing sense of humor, and so she would, you know, keep us interested. And like each time she told a story, it would, there would be something new, you know, mm-hmm. even though it's the same base story, um, it would, you know, we'd all always learn or be able to laugh about something new because she had such an amazing um, sense of humor, but also a way of, she was a storyteller. And mm-hmm. and that's just this, a tradition, you know, oral um history and storytelling was just a total way of life. Anyway, um, I, as an adult, now I realize like how important that was. She would um, share different lessons each time. And sometimes they would be, without us knowing it, you know, they would be targeted on something that we might have like a lesson that we had to learn, you know, whether it was sharing or listening listening to your parents or um you know not not doing something dangerous she would share that specific story as a a lesson yeah and then as we got older the stories would change and they would get a little bit more complicated so um you know you would learn something new or something at a higher level that you kind of had have a deeper understanding for um and so, yeah, it was just a special, really special, um, especially now that a lot of elders have passed on, that you were able to listen to stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something I keep thinking is how conducive your time at fish camp as a kid was to all of this, you know, telling stories, your beadwork, you know, the the dioramas you create now with Barbie, Fish Camp Barbie, all of that art. Yeah, it's total a total reflection of 
um, are the way I grew up. Um, and like, you know, so I don't know if you can hear my dog. He's outside barking right now. It's okay. Hopefully it won't, isn't too distracting. But um, not only like the specific type of creation, I would say, but what's the the thing that you do to create these items it's born out of creativity resilience and just this spirit of making things that fit what your what your way of life is Mm -hmm. so they would um my late grandma was a carpenter too i mean among uh other things but she was able to create these stools like we had a stool uh, probably for 40, 30 or 40 years that um, withstood time because mm. she just created it in such a, um, you know, that it held up. And mm-hmm. so creating these little Barbies and it, it's just a, a reflection of that, I think. And, and it makes me feel connected to my late grandma Mm-hmm. And I think it makes other people feel so special that um, there's something that reflects who they are. And mm-hmm. I just love being able to create that and helping people to, you know, have that connection, whether they're an adult or it's something that they could share with their kids and create for their kids. Um, but I've just a lot of people have shared with me how special it is to see that and see their way of life reflected, even though they might be from a different culture, from Alaska or Canada or lower 48 tribes. Mm-hmm. And it just makes them, it, they've told me that it's healing. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, I'm just blown away by that because yeah, that's great. I just created something that was special to me and it turns out it just hits a chord with people healing their inner child to see something that reflects who they are. Mm -hmm. As your dogs were just barking, I immediately remembered how you grew up in a dog mushing family. And is there some connection with, you know, you owning dogs currently and also having grown up with dogs. Yeah, I feel comfortable around dogs. Um, so it's natural that I would, I feel like I would have an adult, a dog as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love connecting to animals. Um, and I I just have that, I guess, in, ingrained um, relationship and comfort of um, being around dogs and being able to like train them not that i'm you know haven't not that i'm any good at it um (laughs) but yeah there's definitely a comfort and um that dog mushing is uh, really special to me and i love seeing dog mushing flourish in alaska and Mm -hmm. um around the state and um i do um Side note, I'm working on a um, a dog mushing Barbie. And oh, so okay. my daughters and I are, we have the sled, we have um, 
we started on it and then we have the little dogs that we created we're going to make little harnesses okay um but it's just something that that we're doing and i just i just love dog mushing do you have any stories about dogs or maybe a dog that is from your childhood or maybe even adulthood um one a uh, funny story, I guess, um, is the when we were in Bettles, um, we would sometimes, like my dad would take out maybe two teams and be training two teams at a time. And so we would follow him. Um, mm -hmm. And one time my cousin Michelle and I, we were driving that second team and then um, we were following my dad and he's like off and like disappeared. And so we okay. and the dogs knew where to go. Um, but yeah. one time I was like dragging for, it seems like like half a mile, but um, my cousin Michelle had to stop and then, um, and then I had to run, get up and run and then, uh, you know, get back on the sled. Um, but that was just a super hilarious memory that I had of, <laughs> dragging on the sled you really have to be in control and yeah hang on you know you i bet yeah otherwise um you would have to like walk a long way to catch up your team thankfully she was riding with me and she was able to stop <laughs> the sled and wait for me to catch up but it's not like a snow machine where you stop and go you just have they have to wait for you yeah yeah there seems like and I've never dog mushed before, but I've watched quite a bit of it. And there seems like there's a synchronicity between the musher and the dogs. You know, there's this uh, relationship, either unspoken or spoken at times, where um, that doesn't exist with a snow machine. You know, there's a throttle <laughs> and, and there's a way to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. My dad um, and we all had relationships you know with uh, the dogs and mm -hmm. i have memories of uh the leaders mainly that's the ones that you would that it seemed like they would um get the i guess the best treatment in a way um mm -hmm. like one treat would be if they got to come in the house you know we had they were mostly uh, obviously outside but um sometimes they would be able to come inside and and I just remember those special times of connecting with um, those bugs. Getting back to Barbie, you know, I had this thought about your fish camp Barbie scenes. And please let me know if it's wrong or just off the mark. Barbie is, in so many ways, the symbol of fashion, beauty, and empowerment as it relates to Western culture. But Alaska Native culture isn't Western culture. And Western culture has historically done terrible things to Native people and Native cultures. Does all that sound right? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that, um, you know, you don't see that. I mean, it's it's really promising that there's like the Wilma Mankiller Cherokee doll mm -hmm. now, which is really awesome. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's not something you would definitely see and and that's not, they, they don't re reflect your way of life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it's very specific. I get that, you know, like Alaska Native uh, life is totally different than even some of the tribes. I mean, it is different, way different than the tribes in the lower 48 or okay. the native people in Canada, you know. Okay. And so it's hard to like, like pick one. What are you going to do that? There's so many, you know, over 500 different tribes to choose from. So of course mm -hmm. it's, it's a challenge, but um, yeah. So you just have to create it yourself. So as you were just saying, Barbies have become more diverse, you know, this includes Asian Barbies, black Barbies and native American Barbies. But personally, where do you draw the line between cultural appropriation and representation? Um, I guess I kind of like, I think there's a good way to do things and collaborate with uh, Native people and getting you know, creating, creating something that more people can get their hands on and mm -hmm. love and appreciate and find themselves reflected. Um, but there's so many um, cultural appropriation examples, it's just ingrained in um, and Western culture is, you know, stealing ideas and um, making things that and making money off of um, Native people and our arts and our creations, our, mm. you know, patterns, um, designs. Unfortunately, it's just such a huge thing. It's just really sad to see um, that people taking advantage of that. So I guess I just try to create things and put it out into the world. Um, to continue to show that our way of life exists. And, um, and I also encourage people to support native artists. Mm -hmm. And so I'm can always, you know, people will come to me, where can I get, you know, this um, gloves or um, where can I find someone to like repair these slippers? And I, mm -hmm. I'm always, referring um, them to native artists and also encouraging them not to, uh, to steal ideas. And then um, it's not hard to learn about cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a Google search mm -hmm. um, and, and people just don't understand that. So it's just a constant battle, I feel, of educating people and it mm -hmm. just gets mm -hmm. exhausting to educate people sometimes. Um, there was a teacher from a rural village who is non-native and it's one of the people who come up to Alaska after they earn their degree and then they come to Alaska to get the experience and the job. Okay. And then so um, she lived in a village and then she learned about um, beading and then she moved out of the village and then um, she created an account that was uh, Athabascan beading hmm. and um, people like shot her down so fast, you know, Okay. because it's not, that's just not appropriate to yeah. um, sell beadwork, even though you might've learned, which is something special that 
she must have had a special connection with people for them to teach her. But yeah, it's unfortunate how people will use our techniques and ideas and um, for personal gain. Mm -hmm. Do you think Fish Camp Barbie can be a way to introduce Alaska Native culture to people unfamiliar with it? Yes, definitely. It's a big door that um, for open for a conversation where, you know, I can share about what life was like growing up in fish camp and mm -hmm. these different tools and all the things that we do with them, whether it's cutting fish or, you know, talking about um, cutting up moose meat or cutting strips of dry meat. Um, and then, you know, that might go on to different conversations about um, the different way of life that we have and, it, mm -hmm. and helping people to understand what they might not have understood before and why things are important to us. And just getting a glimpse, I guess, of um, into the lives of people who they might have had stereotypes about, you know, whether it's um, like being an alcoholic, that's a common stereotype or mm. um, a number of different, or being a criminal, you know, mm. um, or being homeless, you know, those different perceptions that they might have just because mm -hmm. they haven't thought about it. It hasn't been in their, um, in their world. So mm. seeing something different spurs them to be curious about it. And uh, that's something that, that I found that, um, and then even seeing like the popularity of the fish camp Barbie has made them like dig deep and like read some of the comments and understand that their worldview might not be, they might not be, you know, um, I guess so knowledgeable about things that, um, they have perceptions about and then they see what it means to other people mm -hmm. of how important it is to have representation and they might have a they might gain a respect for that mm -hmm. realizing how important representation is yeah what does it mean for you to use barbie so that she represents alaska native subsistence and life ways i think that it just really is such a gift to be able to share um, our ways of life in this, you know, popular, um, I guess, Barbie has just gotten more popular in the last year or so, yeah. last couple of years. But, um, you know, in this mainstream media kind of way, I get to share something that is special to people and it makes them feel good um, makes them proud to be who they are makes them proud to be um, from a certain village or you know it it makes them feel good mm -hmm. and sometimes to see that themselves represented they might not feel good about themselves if they just see how Barbie is now and in, in living in this imaginary city, you know, mm -hmm. um, and having this totally different experience and it might not make you feel special 
because that's totally not your experience. You're used mm -hmm. to, you know, a four wheeler instead of um, a Corvette car with the, you know, um, top down and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just love sharing that story and making feel people feel special and connected because there's so many people who are, even though they're native, they might be from, they might've grown up outside of Alaska or they might not have had the same experiences. And so I feel super grateful to be able to help them reconnect to their culture and be curious to learn about who they are and mm -hmm. make them feel a connection. I get a lot of questions about um, just how to do things, how to create things, how to repair beadwork. Um, but for people who are, you know, um, not as connected, they they just love and appreciate even a simple YouTube tutorial about how to do beaded edging. They they super appreciate that, and mm -hmm. that's why I continue to share our culture. Have you seen or heard any stories about the positive repercussions Fish Camp Barbie has had on maybe Native youth? Um, I think I the main, I guess, example is, of course, myself, mm -hmm. because I was once a Native youth, and it's, this experience started when I was young in my Grandma made me feel special and be proud to be someone who was from fish camp mm -hmm. and from the village and to be native. And it wasn't popular to be native like 40, 50 years ago. And so um, that memory has brought me a long way and created resilience in myself and uh, makes me proud to be a Koyukon Athabaskan from Huslia and who um, is Alaska Native. And then, of course, I created that for my daughters, mainly the mm -hmm. younger one. Um, my older daughter had Barbies, but um, I just happened to remember and create this memory with the younger daughter. And she um, really loves it. And she that's something that she remembers and made her feel special and yeah and also was a way for me to share because she grew up in Anchorage. Um, it was a way for me to share what life was like and what camp was like and um, how hard we had to work. Like mm -hmm. you know, like most parents, we talk about our hard life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I I just uh, so I see that in them uh, my daughters how they are filled up i guess instead of uh, feeling disconnected and uncomfortable with who they are i feel like mm. they're more proud of who they are and it's not just the barbie but it's also beadwork and um, teaching them how to do beadwork and um, sewing and everything like that and mm -hmm. creating things that that makes them feel special and they love doing those uh, learning and, you know, it just creates a self-confidence and builds their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Throughout this conversation, we've talked a lot about media. Overall, how do you think Alaska Native cultures are represented in the media in like books, television shows, movies, podcasts, 
toys since we're talking about Barbie? I think it's definitely getting better. Um, I think people are getting a little bit more responsible with how they report on Native people. Um, and, and that's encouraging. So I still think that the way Alaska Native people are perceived is there's room for improvement. Um, and another thing that is a challenge is that there's less funding and I guess, I don't know, sponsorship or support for um, more of our stories to be told uh, in a good way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's it's kind of hard to like tell a story in two minutes. I mean, there's definitely, you have to put the work in to be able to do that. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just, we need just a little bit more because we do have so many stories to share. Like I'm just one person and I come from this place that represents just a small part of the whole culture and um, ways of life that we live throughout the whole state because we're such a huge state and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's so many differences uh, even from one village to another and so we have a lot of stories to share and I hope that we get more um, stories told about Alaska Native people but also that I always encourage more Native people to um, share their stories. And, and there's so many different ways nowadays to share stories, whether it's writing or video or, um, you know, sharing like audio or on podcasts, you know. Mm-hmm. I just really support, um, try to support people who are um, wanting to share their story. And I share how I've been able to like create the blog and Mm -hmm. um just ideas and ways to do it and kind of put that tool in their hands i guess Mm -hmm. well angela those are all my questions i want to thank you for talking with me about your life your art and your culture Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun to share about Fish Camp Barbie and our ways of life. Um, And I just really want to encourage people to continue supporting Native storytelling and to create spaces, give space for people to share their stories and and, uh, because we all need our stories to be told and to just love and appreciate who we are. We totally need that. We have, we need some healing. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Mm-hmm.